Yeah, let's keep this on. One never know. <laughs> Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the H.B. Tom Theatre, and more specifically, the Wurtfeuer 2016. Just a brief introduction from the Wurtfeuer side. Um, Joyce Kotzer grew up in Namibia, studied in Cape Town, and worked as a radiographer on the conflict-torn borders of southern Africa. Her interest in war and its effects on the lives of those caught up in it stems from a family history. Her grandfathers found themselves on opposing sides in the Boer War. Her great-uncles fought in the Great War and her father in World War II. She divides her time between Namibia and Ribic Valley near Cape Town. She continues writing. Jonathan Amit is a freelance proofreader, editor and manuscript advisor. Writes regular reviews for LitNet, Slipnet and the Cape Times and is a part-time lecturer at the English Department of the University of Stellenbosch. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Scott, just before we start, okay, the mics are on. Okay, fantastic. Uh, you've made it. Excellent. Uh, we're just about five minutes late, but I don't think anyone will mind. Uh, good morning, Joyce. We've barely had a chance to... Good morning. How are you? ...to become acquainted. I'm very well. How are you doing this morning? Always well, thank you. All the way from Rubik Ves. I'm very pleased to have you here. Uh, to start off with, uh, maybe just a show of hands to see who's uh, read Joyce's book so far. Okay. So we have, a, we have a faithful legion of fans here this morning. About 15 diehards, mostly women. So you'll have to, have to make a plan to get the men on board. I do have some men aboard. The re most recent one is from Denmark. I see. Mm. Excellent. Well, I'd like to start off with, uh, with an uh, appraisal and a compliment for you. Um, I, I read this book, and I'm a voracious reader, but uh, I read it in one sitting, and it, I decided to do that because from the first page of this wonderful story, I was, I was drawn in, and without being superfluous in praise, it's a, it's a really wonderful novel. It's beautifully written. It's exceptionally moving. It takes you to so many different places while you're reading it, and it has a, it has a real tactile quality. Um, you, you really sense everything that happens in the book from the smallest little details to the grand historical sweep of what you're, what you're painting with this novel. Um, and I feel that it's a, it's a novel that really carries its momentum all the way through. You know, with a, a book that's 570 pages, you might experience a dip at some point. But you manage, you, you manage to avoid any kind of pitfalls, and by the end, you're, you're actually wanting more. So I'd like to really give you, give you all the praise for this, this wonderful novel. Um, as a way to start, um, you have a, a very intimate connection with war, I would say. Yes, um, I sort of grew up with all the stories in the war, because as, as you know, my grandfathers were on opposite sides, because we were from Irish and from German and Dutch stock. So my Oma, she used to tell us how very kind the English were to them while they were on the felt. She was only 14 years old when the Boer War happened, and how the English actually helped them, you know, gave them food and all that. So I thought, well, the English aren't that, all that bad. And on the other side, Aunt Joyce, who is now 90, and, you know, the rest of the Dixon family. 
They always said that the Boers were absolutely stupid to take on the mighty British Empire and it's their fault. You know, so it was from both sides. And then the next generation went into the First World War and most of them got killed, couldn't even find the bits of them, not even their names, three of them. And then the next one went 19-year-old in the Second World War and then I went into a war and war will always be with us. So you might just as well go through yours and, and live through it. But it's the individuals in war. That's what my father taught me. Well, they fought against the Germans and, you know, in Italy, North, North Africa and got wounded very badly. Never had anything bad to say about the ordinary German soldier. That's why in what I'm writing and what I'm writing now and in there, I try to take both sides and see the emotional impact on the individuals from both sides. Because it's individuals who fight wars, not governments. You know what I mean? The individuals got to go there and actually do the killing and the suffering and swearing and all that stuff. So when did you decide to write this book? And I mean, it's, it's not a small undertaking to cover a, a portion of history that, I mean, let's be frank, every, I mean, everyone should know what happened in the, in the war, but you managed to present it in a way that is fresh and that's new and that makes one think about the kind of climate that we have now where there's a general feeling of uncertainty, mistrust, people choosing sides, you know, people feeling very uncertain and the way that yeah. you then sort of little by little build up the sense of an anticipation yes. until the war eventually erupts. So where did you start? What was the seed for your, yeah, well, for your novel? I say you can put this story in any war, in any, you can put it now. It, it's always been it like has that. such a universal quality. It has, yeah. yeah. Uh, I never asked Ria, now she was at school with me, I never said I'm going to be a writer one day. It just happened. One day I, did, I didn't sit down and write the book. I sat down and wrote the story, which happened to turn into a book, but I was halfway through the story when uh, I went to Europe and I asked my Oma, where shall I go and look for your three brothers? You know, their graves. And she said, but they have no graves. So I couldn't believe it. So I found them on the missing for the, in the song, you know. Anyway, then I started taking interest in the First World War and left that aside. And then through the years, I carried on with both of them and the third one. And with Sharon Taub, she's my editor, we got that one down to half the size that it was. This one? Yes. So you had more than a thousand pages worth yes, of, worth of writing? Yes, thicker than Gone with the Wind, my mother-in-law said. So I wrote, I wrote, and I wrote. <laughs> and I thought, if I kill this one off now, I won't have enough pages, you know, to fill up. So I don't kill him off, I just make him wound. I'm just only joking. <laughs> but no, it was actually much thicker than that. Okay. And then you get the editors, and they cut out all the crap and the author's indulgence, you know, that bits where you... Because what I do, why you find that... And I have that comment from many people. Unputdownable. To me, it's such a... It is a bit of a cliche, yeah. Yeah. At every page, got to move the story on. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, mm. It, delete, delete. Yes. So what I'm doing now, I am... This next book, it's coming out March next year, because that's being translated first. So this will be out before Christmas. Okay, excellent. I want to ask you about the translation in a moment. And then, so I've got 320,000 words, which I've got to reduce to... It's lovely, I love rewriting. I've got to reduce it to, say, 200. That's about 220. Okay. So you've got to cut about 100... 
100,000 words. Yes. Why, though? Because when you sit down and you get carried away, you know, you just do what these people are saying, you know? Characters. But aren't people enjoying big books again? Yes, I know. To get sidetracked. Mm -hmm. But because that's a, my first one, they, wasn't gonna, they weren't going to give out a thick, thick okay. first, you know, an unknown author. Yeah. But I had an excellent editor, okay. Alfred Limiteur. Well, editors, I think, are as important as writers. They are absolutely essential. I don't think I can do without an editor, because yeah. I tend to carry on. But now I've learned to, okay. you know, leave the other bits out. That's not really important. Okay. That doesn't move the story on. You don't. Doesn't, don't move the story on. Okay. So, uh, you've spoken about your, your interest in, in uh, finding the, the graves of your, your mm -hmm. family members. I want to ask you a specific question about characters in this book. Um, before I get to the, the pers different perspectives that you take... Did I'd, you like the characters? I loved the characters. Why and you like them they're all sympathetic. Mm -hmm. That is the... That is the, the wonderful thing about a novel like this, when you can write and have a massive, massive cast of characters, but they're all credible, they're all believable, and mm. they all have a story to tell. Mm. They're not just functional to move the story along. So I'd like to ask you about the, the family story and the two sides, which is a, obviously it's an excellent narrative device because you've got the, the Boer side and then you've got the side mm. of the Brits. How did that come about? Why did you decide to bring in the, the cousins in the story? Um, cousins may be working better than a, a brother or a sister. Yeah, no, you could, you the know? brother was just too close. Mm. Um, because, as I say, we are Irish and Dutch, and a little bit of German as well. That's how my genetic pool works. And the Dixon side were always sort of opposing the other side. That was before I was born because they were pro, but then they were cousins as well, like Uncle Roy, Jimmy Dixon, you know him, and those people, they were um, cousins of my father, you know, and great aunts, uh, great uncles and great aunts. So that's where I thought, well, let's just take the cousins, you know, and push them off to England and, you know, let them stew there and see what happens. So that's what happened. And how do you avoid if you know your family members so well, how do you avoid writing the people you know into the characters too much? I don't think I did that. No, I don't think you, mm, I don't no. think you, you did at all. Because I'll be by the stage if any of my sisters find themselves in there or husbands. Namibians are hardcore. Mm. I think I've been asked many times, is there any character in this book that took something out of me, Joyce? And there is one. But the others are bits here, you know, people that I've met in the Air Force and I was, when I was on the border wall. And yes, so, and then I just put them on a page and then they just do what, you know, they form themselves. I create them and they just live through it. And sometimes I've got to stop them, you know, sort of, it sounds like I'm dilly, but I am a bit dilly. But, well, you know, well, characters have their own life, you know. They, yeah, they do. They take a life of, the, of their own. They do, yeah. yeah. I woke up one night. And there was this Jan Fulun character saying, <coughs> the English says, you know, the English says, you saw my God, you club, you know, and I woke up and I thought, yeah, okay, fine. I quickly go and put that bit in, you know, that's how it works. And then I return to normal again in the morning. 
Oh, all a little schizophrenic. You know, if you can, if you can channel it into a book, all, yeah. the, all the better. Um, what I really enjoyed uh, was the fact that you, you managed to find a balance between, say, three different genres. Obviously, it's a historical novel, first of all. But there's a, a family saga at the core. There's a romantic element. A, there's a lot of sex in this book, by the way. Quite a, quite a passionate... Uh, there was no time for romance. It was war. It was just passion. Get it, you know. Well, there's a lot of passion, right? No, red there is a lot. No, no. People were very, very honest about their intentions. Yeah. So you've got the romantic aspect, and then I would say, in the, especially in the last 200 pages, you've got a, I want to call it almost something like a, th a thriller element, where the momentum of the plot gathers so much, and yeah. you have characters in jeopardy and people's lives that are in danger and that investment that you make throughout the book that really comes to comes to the fore and you you care so much about these characters and you're you're gripped right until the the final final climax because there are there are various high points in the book mm -hmm. but right up until the the epilogue basically you are wondering what will happen with these characters and it's a it's a delicate balancing act to Bring all those elements together. Yeah, and I think that when you get to the end of a big story like that, things got to go fast. You can't just, you know, you have to move it fast, and then it's not every page uh, uh, getting on with a the story, then it's just about every paragraph, got to tell you, because you've got to move to a sharp conclusion, but not make it like a cliche, oh, this one meets this one, and you know, oh, sorry that I've done this and that kind of thing. No, you leave that out because that's not how people will feel, I think. You know? So maybe I got it right there. I think you did. Oh. How do you decide what to leave in and what to leave out? It, all these questions eventually come back to sort of editing and fine-tuning. But, I mean, in a historical novel, you can basically include anything. You can include any train of thought, any conversation, any stolen moment that only two people would know about. Mm. So how do you go and decide when you're building the story what to leave in and, and what, to, what to exclude? Well, what I did, and with the next one as well, first, you know, a lot of research. I love doing research, and I've been to the battlefields. Can you tell us a little bit about your research for this book? Where for this one? Yes, uh, for, the, for the runaway horses. All right, that's why it's written in English, not in Afrikaans, because most of the research that you do is in English. I couldn't find enough. That's actually quite surprising because if you, you think of a novel on the Boer War, you think of something written in Afrikaans. You don't necessarily think of, a, of an English book. Yeah. So I built the historic line first, and then I start creating char characters right in the beginning. And it's usually with a dialogue when the character speaks his first line that I sort of see, well, like that little Stephanie on the first page. She's going to be a uh, heart. You know, she's really going to cause trouble further on. You know, and, and th then I built, but I can't include the whole of the Boer War. You know, I just have to follow where the characters go. But I did research for the entire war, and I went to all the places. There's even a pub there that I just mentioned once in Cambridge, where I had a wild night because I just wanted to know what the pub was like. and. Um, it ended up me almost falling in the river, but anyway. <laughs> um, it was a nice... Good research. Yeah, Good research. So I don't, no, like, with what I'm writing now, 
I've been to these places. It's set mostly in the Karoo, but then wham, bang, I put you in Dalwood. You know, like, you know, we required peaceful rebellion and all the passions and things. I call it torrent of torrents of spring. That part, and um, they get all sort of crossed with each other. You know, spring really sort of wakes up the hormones and the blossoms and the trouble. And the rebellion was there. So you're going all out with the blossoms? Yeah, the blossoms and the quits. And, and then, of course, the war. They had to go after the war, and we'll see. Well, I don't think in terms of anything dramatic that you can really go wrong with a story that is essentially about war. You have the, mm. you have the, the dramatic kernel of yeah. events. Mm. And what you've done with a book is... You've made it very personal. And I think that's the angle that readers will enjoy. That it's not just a historical account, but mm. that everyone that lives in this mm. book, that they matter, yeah. and that they matter to other people, and that you mm. can engage with them, and that they, that they mean something. Yeah, and that life still goes on. I mean, you're 20 or you're 19, and there's this war dumped on you, but you're still a person. I mean, you still fall in love, and you still get cross, and you still, you still have to live. And I mean, you're not going to put it aside just because there's a war. Yes, and mm. I like the fact that you showed that the war isn't responsible for all the heartbreaks mm. in the book. Mm. You know, people actually live their lives, you know, and yeah, war like is incidental in a sense, and yeah. then it separates families yeah. and people have to choose sides. Yeah. Yeah. And that to me was, that was beautifully handled. I, Thank you. I really thought that was very well done. Um, in terms of the milieu of the story, you're building a, a very local picture with the Boers, but you're also showing the reader Victorian England. Mm. So how do, you, how do you manage to represent both equally in a sense and create a sense of contrast, but also show how the, the two societies had overlaps and, and similarities? That's a tough one, Anna. No, 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 no. When you create, like, the character James Henderson is a cavalry officer, and... Um, because my husband was in the Air Force, I made a lot of a pilot in the Air Force, so I made a lot of um, real English, you know, because uh, chopper pilots in nowadays are the cavalry. So they used to talk like that. And also I've got a, a lot of English friends, and I've read a lot about Victorian England. So you just stay in that character's point of view. That is the most important thing to make it a, pers a personal. You never go out of the character's point of view. It's whether he's riding a horse, whether he's fleeing, whether he's having a, I was going to say a bonk, when he's in bed with someone, you know, you yeah. stay in his point of view. What does he feel? What does he think he's doing? Yeah. And if, when you're in the British one, you stay in the British one. When you're in the poor one, you switch over here. So would you write little bits, specifically in terms of, of characters and scenes, would you stay with something and then sort of edit it together? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know how to do it. As I said, I first just wrote a story. Mm. I got to York Varsity to see, because I was then on to my third book. Now, how do you actually do it? Because this is just getting thicker and thicker. Mm -hmm. So I learned that York Varsity. And I thought, no, I'm not going to land in the slush pile. You know, they've got the slush pile of all. I work with a slush pile. 
So yeah. But I'm not going in. No, especially not a book like this. It's never. No one's ever going to read it. So no. you go after it was Well, I think, I mean, Jonathan Ball is an excellent publishing house, so you're in very, 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 very safe hands. Every writer is a procrastinator. Every single writer. They're terrible. I love the sound of deadlines as a sort of wish away. They're awful. We do our best. We're not in a war. <laughs> I want to ask you about place, specifically. Um, I mean, we're in what has been described recently sort of as the ideological birthplace of apartheid. We're in Stellenbosch. We're constantly these days reminded about divisions between people, haves, have nots, uh, where you can go, where you can't go. Um, what struck me about uh, your, your sense of, of setting and place here is the fact that these characters are, they're formed by their environment. And it's an absolutely essential sense for who they are, for to their identities. Um, can you talk a little bit about your sort of your Namibian background and how that influenced the way that you wrote about the, the place for these characters? Say let's write a novel about Hungary because I wouldn't know anything about the customs or the the way they talk, the way they you know. So I know Namibia. I went there when I was ten days old. I can't even remember crossing the border. And I went to school there, and then I went to school in Amakwaland, just across the border. And then when I finished studying, I went straight back there, and that's where I spent most of my life. Um, but also, I spent some time in South Africa, and because of my South African connections and my Omar who was in the rural war and the aunts and all that. I've got a very solid foundation in South Africans, whether they're English or Afrikaans. But is that the place that you asked about? I don't understand. Okay, and there's a cave in there, and I've been into the cave, you know, so all these things come back. So what I'm writing now is set in the Karoo. And it's um so I don't use adjectives and adverbs, so you really have to me, it's just overall. Yeah. So I find all these, you just yeah. to the colors and the things and you put it in to up. Well, I mean, the Karo is such a, it's such a unique landscape. It yeah. has such a sp specific mm. kind of beauty. Yeah. 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 Is that the sense of place or do you want no, I wanted to find out a little bit more about your sort of your own background now, sort of growing up in Namibia and then and working on the border, which is quite tough. It's been twelve years there. It's not illegal when the building was cut 
Did you choose that? Or did it basically, did, did it happen to you? Oh, I also want to yeah. go. My father was there, so I also want to have a bit of it. But I was not in the military. I must stress that. I was on the other side. Being a rebel, I had to choose the other side. So, I was in contact with my friend, the, the Vambu people, and I was also married to a military man. So that made it more exciting, so I could play like, always wanted to be a spy. But I wasn't a spy then, I just sort of worked it. And I got into some very tough situations, but um, that's part of life, isn't it? We do. Something doesn't. So it was difficult, you know, it sort of, because you get the patients, the ones that, oh, you could call it patients, the casualties, as they were on the battlefield, battlefield, bushes, whatever. And, uh, yes. Well, you're definitely a very strong woman. And this book, although it's a novel about men mm. and masculinity and war and what it does to men's psyches, mm. you don't neglect women. Can you talk a little bit about the, the different female characters in the book and how they came to you and sort of why you allowed them to have a, an integral role to the story? Because they're not just there for a little while and then you ship them off. No, because they were also in the war. The war was also pushed into their lives. Yeah. You see, and you can't just leave it out and have all these men going, shooting in the bush and killing each other. You have to have the home element as well, the, the town to Kubas, the farm. Yeah. What the effect of the war was on them. Yeah. Because they, they were also alive then, and it also affected their lives. So I chose, I think, one to three, yeah. four main characters. Mm. An old aunt, which is the wise one, and then the typical lovely soft boy girl, yeah. and then this educated girl, Stephanie, I think, yeah. And... Uh, I had to have a British girl as well, just to make the love triangle type of thing. And because they were also part of the war. They also went through it, they also suffered through it, they had to live through it. So you have to have this womanly point of view as well. Does it answer your question? Yes, absolutely. No, it definitely does. Um, what struck me while reading the book is that you're reading about poor characters that are Afrikaans, and you mm. know that they're Afrikaans, yeah. but they're speaking in English, and you never actually feel that it's an awkward translation or that you don't buy what the people are saying. Yeah. Was that a challenge for you? Because it, it was never... I didn't read the book and thought, okay, maybe this is an Afrikaans story that's being told in English. Mm. It feels intact, the language feels yeah. natural, and it, it's convincing it works. Yeah, Paul Kruger was quite difficult to get him to speak English. So it's like I had books and books and books just to his character. You know what I mean by fear? But you don't turn him into a, a caricature or a stereotype. No. He's actually a real person. Yeah, a real person. He's just there to draw the history together. As you can see, he's got his point of view in three or four beginning of the parts. So this, he sits on his stoop. And he you draw the entire history of what's happened in the last couple of years together in his mind. So to get him to English was not difficult because I knew him then. You see, like he was a as the young man maar net a vrou kan kry. You know, I, I, you know, and it sort of got through in English sounding Dutch. Is that 
What was the most enjoyable part of the book? Because, I mean, to make an investment in a book like this, it takes quite a long time to write. What did you enjoy the most about, about, about writing? writing yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I absolutely love the Boer characters, you know, and the way they lift their dances, and, you know, Jan Fulyun drinking his homebrew. There's such an exuberance, you know, yeah, from the dancers to the, yeah. the Mampur. And, yeah. yeah. And what you do, like, they're having this dance at at the drift on New Year's Eve and immediately cut to the British dance in England to show the sharp contrast between morals and, you know. And I love doing the dances and I love doing, um, you know, the lesser characters like the twins. I love writing about them and Jan Fulyun and those guys. That was enjoyable. But when I get to the deaths, I, I didn't decide who's going to live and who's going to die. You just get there and all of a sudden... You know, the bullets are coming. And I don't believe in a writer who spares his main characters. Because, like, now in the First World War, they're all in the war. So there's, so, no, there's no sequel. There's no Runaway Horses too. I'll think about it, but... I can't tell them. Yeah, I don't want to... They want to give away too much. Anyway, I, I'll, I'll think about it, but not so, because I'm... Um, too much into what I'm doing now. So. Well, I can feel that you want to talk about your new book. Yes. I can't really talk about it because it's not out yet. It's still being, it's still being produced. Rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. So, good okay. writing is rewriting. Well, it's Beyond Forgiveness. It, it's not a soppy title. It's an angry title. Because what happened in the First World War, not just to South Africans, to the whole entire generation, was absolutely... Do you think enough people know about that part of history? Well, they have to tell them about it. I don't think enough young people, definitely. Exactly. I don't think they do. I don't they think they do. I was in the, one day in Johannesburg, I was asked, well, we are, you know, about that book, we yeah. are the Jews then, you know, and Hitler. So I thought, well, okay, let's just, let's just not laugh at ignorance. Let's just keep South African history alive in fiction. Because if you give them a history book, so you give them fiction. Yeah. Where were we now? First Talk World War. Oh. Yeah, yeah, First World um, War. Like beyond forgiveness, what happened there, I think, you know, I'm obsessed by the First World War. I've got to raise the white flag. Well, I think it's, a, it's the neglected war for sort of my generation and yeah. the one, I mean, everyone knows the Second World War and yeah. sort of the Holocaust and from yeah. then. But the First World War, not, not necessarily so much. Lots of uh, novels are coming out now about the First World War. I had to wait for them to come out because I want to say what they don't say. Which it's is always what? the trenches in Passchendaele mm, mm, and the mm. mud and the shell uh, shock and all that. Yeah. I have to tell it specifically from a South African point of view. See what I mean? Mm. Because they were in a rebellion, yeah. fighting against each other, 
a civil war which everyone's forgotten about mostly. Yeah. And um, then I've got to twist their minds to go and fight for England, to just ruin their country. That kind of thing. So that's it's quite. Well, that's an that's an incredible conflict to yeah. to think about. So then off they go to France, and what happened? I think you know everyone has been to the battlefields there. Let me just give you a quick example. I'll be quick. At the Tifa monument on the Somme, this is huge, ugly, ugly building, but it goes right into the sky. Seventy-five thousand names on it of just bodies. It's not been found. Because they had to fight over a stretch of mud, say a kilometer long, and they never had time to remove the bodies. So you fight through last year's bodies, and the bomb comes and poof goes a leg, poof goes, you know. It, I mean, it's unimaginable. It's true. It is I'm telling you it's true. And then, and they said, that's 75,000 names. Then you go to um, Minengate, where my great uncles, the one is there, and the other two are Tifa. The 55,000 names of just they can find a leg, they can find a skull, but they cannot find the name of the person. And I've been back quite often, and they still, 100 years later, they still find bodies and unexploded bombs and gas things. Yeah. And it's true, I'm not lying, go there. Well, it's just, um, I always sort of more and more these days think of what William Faulkner said when he said the the past is never dead, you know, it's, yeah. it's not even past. And mm. we're reminded of that constantly, you know, especially as South Africans, we're, especially the, the last, say, 10 years since the Truth Commission, yes. we're trying to work through various kinds yeah. of, of traumas and we're trying to make sense of our history and yeah. history is being... Because yeah, on part it was also a psychological war. Yes, you know, yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And you've got to try and get through that. And whether you protested against it as a student, whether you lived like that, it was a psychological war, yeah. I think. Yeah. And we all get through it the way we can think, uh, yeah. as I say, a character's point of view. That's how we get through yeah. it, I think. Yeah. The first time I was on TV with this book, <sighs> unfortunately it was the day that put some green paint on Paul Kruger's statue. That is, a, that is an incredible irony. So it was in the morning, you know, I'm not wide awake in the morning, I was sitting there, the makeup girl didn't arrive, so I was just sitting there. And they didn't paint you green that day? No, sitting there, watching this little, it's like a little eye that you had to watch. And then the guy on the news said, are you responsible for this? And I, looked, and I said, no, no, no. So why did your book come out today? I said, you know, it's just sort of coincidence, yeah. And I had to explain what would I do about Rose's statue. Uh, once someone in Johannesburg asked me on air about it, because then Rose was painted. So I had to think quickly. So I said, well, you just take the statue, the thing, hide it away until all this is over, because it's rebellion. People's got to rebel. The people's got to rebel. I believe in that. It's rebellion and it calms down and you know all the anger is spent and then later on you bring it back and you put it back. That's all you can do, isn't it? Well you can't destroy history. No, you that's, can't. I think that's a lesson that we're learning. But also what you just said now, we don't have to remember all these terrible things in history. Like in the British school work, the Boer War, I'm telling you, it's one paragraph. Just one paragraph. I, had it, I checked it out the other day. 
So that's why my book is doing quite well in England, and especially in, in the Netherlands, because they want to know what actually happened. Well, it, it sounds like they actually don't know about it. No, because they weren't taught. Like, no. you, you, you didn't know about... Do you know anything about Dalverwood? Very little, honest? very little. But you know the name? Yeah. Yeah, because you're a historian, yeah. aren't you, Joe? Yeah. So very few people know about that. 300 and... Was it 3,120 something South African soldiers went in on the 15th of July. Five days later, 122 came out. <sighs> so I've got to kill off some main characters in there. I can't spare them for the end, you see. What? That's why I've got so many characters in the beginning, because, you know, kill. Just, well, it's like choose your own adventure and you kill yeah. the one off. Then there's a birth and there's a death and yeah. weddings and yeah. You know, um, it's it's fascinating to me to to think that at this point in time there's I think a hunger for stories in this country yes. that is being reinvigorated. I think there's such a lack of consensus about history, about yeah. where we are. There's a lot of negativity. Yes. But I don't think there's sort of a national narrative where everyone is on the same page. We're trying to find our way. On, yeah, that's what we're doing. It's now 20 years. We're still yeah. trying to find your common, oh, not common ground, that's yeah. a cliche, but we're trying to form our own history of the whole country, you know, pre-apartheid and now. Yeah. How are we going to go forward with all this? Yeah. That's why you put history. I'm going to write about a novel, I hope, about apartheid. But I cannot sit it in this country because I didn't live under apartheid. I lived in Namibia. We had very little apartheid. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those free countries mm -hmm. still today. Mm -hmm. So I'm setting it against communism. We well, can compare the two, can't you? If you are on the other side of apartheid. You, you, certain, you certainly yeah. can. Yeah. So we'll do communism compared with apartheid in the 50s and then... So which part? Would you go sort of the height of the Cold War and the end yes, of the apartheid? Yes, and it's also about suicide and classical music, by the way. Um, yes, I'll go to Hungary for that. I've already written it in here. I've been in Hungary when it was just open and I couldn't believe the emotions in that place. It's like... The, anyway, that's a fourth book, so... Well, we have history in... South Africa, and then you have history in Namibia, and you have such rich history in the whole of Europe, mm. in countries that we, for instance, I mean, who thinks of Hungary on a daily basis? Mm. But then you have the privilege of visiting in a place, and mm. history is everywhere. It's everywhere. And what you feel with this book is that history is not some sort of linear narrative thing, mm. but it's, it's something which happens in the moment, yeah. you know, and the characters are in history, yeah. and you feel with every decision that they make, mm. they are escalating on some level, they're moving forward, yeah. and there's, mm. there's a sense of characters being formed, mm. and I think that is very natural, and uh, I think it's one of the things that f you can get with fiction that you won't necessarily get in a historical account, yes. which is more which is more factual. Yeah. And I think the sort of the blend between fact and fiction, you've got a lovely shout out on your cover from Tim Cousins. Yes. Who's, I mean, he is a wonderful yeah. historian of this blend between yeah. fact and fiction. Yes. And is it something you sort of strive towards to have that yes, a kind of balance between the two? You've got to stay true to the historical facts. 
you have to. Well, I, I enjoyed the fact that this was not a metafictional, revisionist, sort of intellectualization mm. of history. I mean, it's a, it, it's a trend sort of, of, especially of academics when they write. Yes. They write fiction. And this is written in pure South African English. Yeah. You know, you don't stumble over a word and look for a dictionary because I can't use those words. Yeah. It's, it's beautifully them. written, but it's not pretentious. It's not pretentious. It's not, it's, your, your nose isn't yeah. in the They're air. They're laughing about the word that I couldn't say. It's your quast. <laughs> Shall I say it? Which one? No, I had to read one first prize at your varsity for a, for a, 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 to read something out of the book. And there's one word, I know exactly what it means, and I know how to pronounce it in the Namibian way, but I couldn't pronounce it in the English way. You've got to tell us. So, I sat on the plane and I practiced that, taught me how to say it. Got on the stage, and now Harry Bingham, the, in, in, he's got what I'm going to read in front of him, so I got to that word and I placed, put another word in it. Ired, iridescent. Exactly. Is that the one? No. It's only, only one. It's a lovely word. Yeah, I know exactly what it means. I know how to spell it, but I just couldn't Can't get pronounce past it. the R. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm not... It's not a literary... Uh, you know what I mean? It's not a, a deep... In the language sense, it's not... It's light, not light to read, easy to read. And that's what I strive for. Keep it easy and flowing. I think that's one of the biggest achievements for a book to be readable. Mm. Without dumbing it down, mm. without having the characters becoming stereotypes mm. or all speaking in the same language, yeah. but for the reader to feel that this writer is talking to me on my level. You know? And I think the connection with the writer is then a lot deeper for the, for the reader that you can mm. actually... You sort of, yeah. You're engaged a lot more, and you don't feel, okay, but I'm not sure what this means. Mm. What is this trying to say? You know? And why does he do this? He's and why? I know why he does this, you know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I think it's, a, it's an accessible book. Thank you. And I think it's, it's a, a book that could be a, it could be a prescribed text. Is all those bits Well, it, it, I think so. It, it reads like... The best kind of books, when I was in school about 10 years ago, so finishing up, it reads like those, those best books. And, uh, when I was at school, we weren't even allowed to kiss in a book, you know, just cut up. Was it redacted? No. <laughs> okay. So, yes, it's going to be translated then. She can say it, the publisher. Okay. It was just heard yesterday. Well, congratulations is then in order. Who is going to translate this? Daniel Hugo. Which makes it nice. Huh. Our privilege. Uh, Who will be publishing it? Will it be published by Jonathan Ball? Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. So, so how long? When can, we, when can we expect this? He said end of September he will be done. Well, I think it's going to be a spectacular book in Afrikaans. What, how would you translate the title? Come on. Do you know Afrikaans? Give me, give me a time. I would not go with a literal translation. No, definitely I wouldn't not. go with a literal translation. We'll I would leave go it to with Daniel to find one. I can see it in Dutch, die weg hol perde. You know, it doesn't work. Uh, no. No, 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 no. 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 Yeah. Um, would you read for us?
No. You can read a bit. Because I, I read very fast and I stumble over the words and you're going to pick that bit. I've got a passage okay, on fine. page 230. Oh, I know what that is. Okay, I'll read it fine. But remember I speak Namlish and my accent is also very... Right, this is where the title of the book comes from actually. And uh, I don't know what to do when I got here because it's just before the war started. And I thought, hmm, they're all together now, so what will happen now? And then this Martinez de Winter started talking, warning the young men about the dangers of war. Now they're sitting on a stoop, they had homebrew, and they're looking the full moon. And the full moon actually did rise on that day, I checked it. So Uncle Martinez is saying, war is a kind of madness, a madness to kill. It comes from a fear, a deep primeval fear of death, and yes, a fear to kill. We all carry this fear within us. There are men who cannot stomach the killing for long. War, sons, wearies the soul. Strong, good men, they break down inside, they make mistakes, they die. Some men get through war with only a wounded body, as they close their minds to suffering and death. Yes, those are the fortunate ones for the body doesn't hurt as deeply as the soul. Then there are those who fight bravely until they reach the threshold of despair, and it comes to them in their weariness, the futility of this madness. So they give up, they break away. They should have stayed as everything had a, as a beginning and an end, but their souls are too weary of war to reason. Those are the runaway horses, the ones with the wounded souls. The moon, the moon was traveling its course. A jackal called plaintively from the flame. Uncle Martinez, James broke the silence on the stoop. What happens to them, sir, the runaways? When it's all done, do they come back to the herd? Martinez shook the dottle from his pipe. No, son, they are not accepted. 